Our scripture lesson is taken from the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 43. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43, page 1225 in the Pew Bible. John chapter 4, verse 43. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people... See signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. The father knew that it was at that same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This again is the second sign. Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. Beloved of the Lord, by way of introduction to this uh, passage, let me just review a little bit of the itinerary of Jesus that John has mapped out for us in the opening chapters of, of his gospel. Uh, Jesus, uh, we find Jesus at the beginning of this gospel with John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist introducing Jesus to the crowds that have come out to John, uh, pointing to him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus leaves John the Baptist, taking some of John's disciples uh, with him, and goes to a wedding at Cana in Galilee where Jesus turns the water into wine, the water that came from purification jars, jars that hold water for purification rites, uh, indicating that uh, Jesus uh, 
will uh, supplant and uh, provide better purification by that which wine represents. It represents his blood. By the blood of his sacrifice, uh, we would be purified much better than all the Old Testament ceremonies of purification. And the wine also pointing to the joy that will be ours at the great marriage supper of the Lamb that will uh, come when Christ comes again. Then uh, we read that it's Passover time, so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, which means he goes south, south from the the province of Galilee to the province of Judea, uh, where Jerusalem is. And in Jerusalem, he cleansed the temple, and he met with Nicodemus and told Nicodemus that he must be born again. And then after the Passover was over, Jesus did not immediately return to Galilee, He uh, spent some time in the Judean countryside where uh, he was attracting large crowds, crowds larger than those that John the Baptist had attracted, which uh, raised some concern among John's uh, disciples, and also when they heard that Jesus' disciples were baptizing. But John gave his final testimony to Jesus that he must increase and I must decrease. Uh, because Jesus knew the Pharisees were aware of the large crowds coming to Jesus and not wanting to precipitate any confrontation too early in his ministry, he decided to return to Galilee. But in order to get to the province of Galilee, he had to go north through Samaria. And there in Samaria, he met the woman at the well, and through her met uh, the people of her town, and he spent some days there. And these uh, Samaritans showed themselves to be very alert spiritually. They recognized Jesus as the Messiah and as the Savior of the world, points that uh, John, the gospel writer, wants us to recognize as well, that Jesus indeed is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. But coming from the Samaritans rather than from the Jews, uh, again, uh, gives us a clue as to the fact that Jesus is not just a Savior for the Jews, but for all the peoples of the world. Well, now our text begins with uh, Jesus leaving Samaria and continuing north to return to Galilee. And the first thing that we need to understand about Jesus' return to the region of Galilee and to the city of Cana, where he had made water into wine, is that Jesus is not pleased with his reception. That's hinted at by uh, the verse that, uh, verse 44, that uh, says Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Galilee was his country, although he was born in uh, in Bethlehem of Judea. He did, wasn't raised there. He was raised in Nazareth of Galilee, and so this is uh, a coming home to his own province. Uh, he He anticipates a poor reception. And indeed, uh, he rebukes the people in verse uh, 48, saying, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And we may scratch our heads at Jesus saying that, because in uh, uh, verse 45, it says that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. In fact, some translations uh, give the translation there of the word received. Uh, they welcomed him. Uh, the word means to, to receive, to accept, uh, to welcome. It has that, that connotation as well. The, they welcomed him. 
why is Jesus not pleased with his reception? Well, he's not pleased with his reception because they're not giving him the honor that they ought to give him, the honor that he deserves. Early in uh, chapter 1, John the Gospel writer says, We beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, That's that's the glory and the honor that he ought to receive, but that's not the kind of glory that he's receiving when they welcome him. These same people had been in Jerusalem and had seen him perform signs and wonders. We read in John chapter 2, verse 23, that uh, when he was in Jerusalem, he performed many signs and, and people believed in him. But even then, Jesus wasn't happy because it says in the next verse, John 2, verse 24, that he did not commit himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. What's going on here? Well, they're not recognizing him as the Son of God, not even as the Messiah and the Savior of the world as the Samaritans have. They simply recognize him as a faith healer. And that's, a, that's their only interest in him, is a, as a faith healer. Uh, they're delighted that someone has come who can heal the sick. And uh, uh, we read about a man from uh, Capernaum, a town 25 miles away, who has a sick son at the point of death, and, and that's what he's interested in. I, I, I need somebody to heal my son. Uh, now, we should not be surprised that people are excited about a faith healer. Uh, People today are just like that. Uh, You and I have a tendency in that direction as well. Uh, You know, one of the the tragedies of our modern era is that much of the evangelical church in North America and really throughout the world today is enamored of these uh, prosperity preachers and these uh, health and wellness preachers who are promising your best life now and promising that if you have faith, you can be healed of any disease. And not only can you be healed of any disease, if you pay a good uh, registration fee, you can go to a conference and and learn how to become a healer yourself, how to give, um, uh, how to perform miracles, not just be the recipient of miracles. And and people who who preach these prosperity gospel and, and the health and wellness gospel They attract large crowds. Lots of people want to hear that, and lots of people are eager for someone who who can make our lives better. We, too, live in a world under the curse of God because of the sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and because of our sin as well. Life is hard. Life is tough. There's hard work that has to be done, and, and we struggle to eke out a living, and, and there are all kinds of sicknesses and diseases that plague us, not just in times of pandemic, but all the time. There are struggles and infirmities of the flesh and weaknesses of the flesh that we deal with, and whether it's religious leaders or political leaders, anybody who promises us a utopia here and now, we all have a a tendency to to want to be drawn to that and be attracted to it. Not willing to suffer for a time, to share in the sufferings of Christ now so that we may be assured that we will also share in his glory when he comes again. 
Our longing for utopia is not an illegitimate longing. Uh, We had it once in the garden. We lost it because of our sin. And God has promised to restore it to us. But he also says you have to wait. Now you have to suffer grief through all kinds of trials. But when Christ comes again, if you are patient, if you wait, then the the utopia will come. Then the glorious inheritance laid up in heaven, imperishable, undefiled, fading not away, then it will be given to you. Oh, there is a down payment now. There is joy now, but it's an inner joy, not uh, a joy that comes from seeing all our problems disappear now. Now you have to be willing to suffer with Christ that you might be assured that you will share in his glory when he comes again. So we need to be careful not to fall prey to the uh, peddlers of uh, prosperity or health and wellness or any other uh, person who promises us that we can have everything right here and now and uh, all our problems will be made to disappear. Well, Jesus is, is not happy that all they want from him is, is the here and now blessings, uh, the health and wellness stuff. That's, that's all they're looking to him for. And he rebukes them. You know, they, they, they have very little faith, to just uh, enough faith to, to want a miracle. That's, that's all they're concerned about. Uh, but though he is displeased with them, not getting the honor that he deserves... The glory of this passage is that he doesn't reject them. He helps them, and he helps one man in particular, and that's what we want to look at now. This, this man who comes to him, who, uh, whose son is grievously ill at the point of death, we're told that he is a nobleman. That's uh, the word used in our text, although there's a footnote in my uh, a New King James Bible, I don't know if it's in the Pew Bible as well, that says a royal official. The best way to understand this is he's not a nobleman in the sense that he has an inherited title. He's a nobleman in the sense that he is a, a servant of nobility. He is a royal official. He's, he's like um, Joseph in Pharaoh's court or like Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's court, uh, a person who, by virtue of his talent and ability, his recognized uh, skills, has been promoted to a chief position under the royal authority and uh, now has a very high official position in the royal court. Uh, the, the royalty that this man serves is probably Herod Antipas, uh, often sometimes referred to as King Herod in the Bible. He is a, a son of Herod. Herod the Great, Herod the Great, who was alive when Jesus was born and ordered the uh, uh, murder of all the uh, children two years and younger. Well, this is his son, who is now the Tetrarch of Galilee and uh, the uh, uh, like to be called king, uh, although that wasn't his uh, official title. He nevertheless uh, used that title and people used it of him and it's even used in the Bible of him. Uh, and uh, he's the one who arrested John the Baptist. This Herod Antipas is the one who uh, arrested uh, John the Baptist and eventually had him put to death. And uh, this is now a royal official in this province and therefore probably serving this uh, uh, King Herod. 
And uh, he comes to Jesus. He, uh, oh, he's, he's not to be confused with the uh, centurion whose servant was ill. The centurion was also from Capernaum. This father is from Capernaum, and the centurion was, uh, whose servant was ill from Capernaum. And there's some similarities, but there are also some big differences. The centurion uh, was not a royal official, and uh, he also said to Jesus, I'm not worthy to have you come to my house. Just give the word. Uh, this royal official is insistent that Jesus has to uh, come to his house. Uh, and uh, we're told that, I think, uh, to give us some insight into his character. He's a, a high official. He's used to having people uh, obey him. He doesn't ask. He almost commands Jesus, you must come, you know, come to my house. Uh, he expects Jesus to, to make some sacrifice. It's a 25-mile trip. Uh, a father in good physical condition uh, who is desperate about the, the well-being of his son could make that 25-mile trip in a day, uh, perhaps. But it's unlikely that Jesus, with an entourage of disciples, could make it in a day. So he's asking a great deal of Jesus to come all the way to Capernaum to uh, just deal with one case when there were probably a lot of sick people in Cana of Gala, in Cana as well uh, who needed Jesus' help. Uh, but he's, uh, whether he's uh, uh, being officious, uh, uh, kind of uh, haughty in his manner in demanding, or whether he's just a, a desperate father uh, uh, pleading with Jesus to come do something for my son, uh, he, one thing is evident, and that is that he has some, some degree of faith in Jesus, whether it's really a hope that Jesus would uh, help. Um, but because Jesus rebukes not only him, but all who are gathered there for their lack of faith, we must say that his faith isn't very strong. It's, he's probably a Jewish man uh, who has risen in the uh, uh, government there. He probably knows about Elisha and the, the Shumanite uh, woman who built a prophet's room for Elisha and then was rewarded with a child. She had no children up to that point, but Elisha prayed for her. She, she had a son, and then a few years later, that son became ill and uh, died. And uh, the Shumanite woman went to Elisha. Elisha could see he was, he was distraught, but he had no idea what the problem was. He couldn't discern the problem, and he couldn't heal her son unless he was present. And this uh, father is probably thinking the same thing, that uh, Jesus needs to be present. He needs to touch my son. He needs to do what Elisha did, lay down on my son or something to, to bring him back to life, to restore him to health. And so he is insistent that uh, Jesus come. Uh, most of Jesus' miracles probably that had been reported were uh, ones that Jesus had done in the immediate presence and, and not from a distance. But Jesus uh, rebukes him and rebukes those uh, who are with them for their lack of faith. But that, uh, that uh, they uh, didn't trust him enough to, uh, to believe in him. Now, Jesus was a miracle worker, to be sure. They're not wrong to want miracles from him. 
But they should have recognized that even Elisha didn't perform miracles just for the sake of performing miracles. He performed miracles so that they, he could uh, be authenticated as a servant of God, a spokesperson for God, so that people would listen to him and to his call to repent of their sins. Uh, that's the only reason why God gave prophets the ability to perform miracles. It was so that they knew that the prophet spoke from God. And when the prophet gave a message, you better heed that message because he speaks for God. How do you know he speaks for God? Because he can perform miracles. But up to this point, the, uh, the people both in Judea and in Galilee are not interested in Jesus' message. That becomes more evident when we uh, if, uh, get to uh, John chapter 6, uh, Lord willing. Uh, and uh, Jesus begins to speak in earnest about his mission here on earth, why he came to earth in terms of his atoning sacrifice. He said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, by which he meant you have to believe in my atoning sacrifice for the remission of your sins. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. And large crowds of people who considered themselves disciples of Jesus up to that point stopped following him because they didn't like his message anymore. They were eager to follow him when he performed miracles, and they were eager to follow him when he filled their stomachs. But when he talked about sin and uh, the atoning sacrifice and the need to have faith in that, then they weren't interested anymore. But when, though he rebukes them for their lack of faith, he doesn't refuse to help. What, this, what Jesus does for this man is two things. He gives him a command and he gives him a promise. The command is, go your way, go home. The promise is, your son lives. And man, at this point, begins to grow in his faith because he takes Jesus at his word. He started on his journey home. Had he not believed, he might have stayed with Jesus and insisted, no, no, you have to come. No, he didn't do that. Or he could have said, well, fooey on you, I'll find another rabbi who's willing to come and pray over my son, and perhaps God will listen to that rabbi uh, rather than uh, to you. Uh, he didn't do that either. No, he, he listened to Jesus Go your way. Your son lives. And he believed. And he showed that he believed by obeying what Jesus told him to do. His faith in Jesus had grown from a, a hopeful faith in the power of Jesus to faith in Jesus' word, in the word of Jesus. And it was faith in the word of Jesus that manifested itself in his obedience to Jesus his faith went from, I hope you can help if you come, to, I take you at your word and will do what you say. But even then, his faith didn't stop growing. When he was on his way home the next day, his servant reached him before he got home and told him that his son had recovered. 
And when the father asked at what time his son had recovered and was told at the seventh hour, which would be uh, at the beginning of the day is six o'clock in the morning, seventh hour would be one o'clock in the afternoon, when he was told uh, that his son got better at uh, 1 p.m., the father knew that that was the same time on the previous day when Jesus had uh, given the word, your son lives. And so his faith was confirmed and strengthened. And not only uh, he believed, but he shared with his family what was going on, and his family believed. In other words, Jesus worked with this man who was only hopeful in the power of Jesus, a power which he thought was limited to Jesus, uh, the near vicinity of Jesus. Jesus had to be there to do something. Uh, to faith in the word of Jesus and faith in Jesus as uh, more than just a miracle worker. The passage concludes with uh, John telling us, John the gospel writer telling us that this was the second miracle. And uh, he, he likens it to the first miracle, that uh, it's, it's another miracle like the first miracle. And I believe the reason he tells us that is because... He told us when Jesus turned water into wine, this was the first miracle by which Jesus revealed his glory. Now, this is a second miracle by which Jesus reveals his glory. This is on a par with the first. He doesn't repeat that line by which Jesus revealed his glory. But he puts it on a par with the first, and the first was one that revealed his glory. So this miracle also reveals his glory. And there's the implication, I think a good implication, that, that that's what this, this royal official began to realize. He began to see Jesus, not just as a miracle worker, but someone who has glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father of grace and truth. We see somebody moving from very little faith to seeing Jesus in a heavenly light, seeing him with the eyes of faith as being the Son of God, the Savior of the world, as the Samaritans had begun to see him. Now from this incident of Jesus being displeased with his people because they're only interested in the here and now to bringing people to see his glory, we can learn some lessons about faith. The first lesson is that faith always starts with a knowledge of who Jesus is. It starts with the facts and the history of his person and work. This man was in Capernaum, and he heard He heard that Jesus was coming from Judea to Galilee. He he not only heard that Jesus was coming, but he knew that Jesus had performed signs in Jerusalem, signs and wonders, had performed miracles, miracles of healing. So he heard reports of Jesus, and that's where his his faith started, with the, the knowledge of who Jesus is, a miracle worker, A miracle worker, probably with an in with God, uh, has a connection with God so that uh, God is doing things through him. And that is his initial draw to Jesus. He comes with knowledge. Paul says it very clearly. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. 
This man heard about Jesus, was intrigued by what he heard. He also had a need which he thought Jesus might be able to fill, so he went to Jesus. And when he meets Jesus, he learns more of Jesus. He sees him in the flesh, and he he, he sees uh, what Jesus is doing and saying. And that, uh, again, uh, works in him. He, He hears the word. The word of Jesus is a command to him. Go your way. And a promise. Your son lives. Uh, This is Jesus' word to him. And that word becomes like a a seed. A seed that penetrates his heart. And begins to take root. And produce fruit. The fruit of obedience. He goes home. And when he learns further. That his son was healed just at the right time. Uh, that Jesus gave that word, his faith is confirmed and strengthened, and, and he shares that faith with others as well in his households. Peter writes, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. That word was spoken to him, and it penetrated him, and it began to produce faith, and it began to grow. He had heard about Jesus, was drawn to him. He met Jesus. He heard the word from Jesus' own mouth. And his faith was built upon the foundation of that knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do. It's born by thinking. Thinking about Jesus. You know, our modern world thinks that uh, faith begins where knowledge ceases. Or faith begins where science ceases. You know, science is about facts and science is about knowledge. But where we have no, no science, no knowledge, no facts, well, that, that's where faith takes over. That's not true. That, that, that's a whole misconception. Faith is built upon knowledge of the facts of who Jesus is and what he came to do, what he says and, and what he does We're to think about it, meditate on it, receive that word as a seed in our hearts so that it might grow. uh, Faith is not contrary to reason. Faith is very rational. It takes information into consideration and meditates upon it. And that's where faith begins. But faith also, a second lesson here, is not only that faith is is based on knowledge of Jesus, upon the the facts of who he is and what he does. The second lesson is that that faith grows through obedience. Faith grows through obedience. The seed of the word won't grow if you don't commit to it and obey it. When the royal official started walking home, he He, by that act, committed himself to Jesus. He could have stayed. He could have refused to to go. He could have insisted that Jesus come. He could have gone to look for another rabbi. But no, he he said, okay, I'm going to trust this guy. I'm going to trust this guy. You know, it, it, it sometimes happens that in your life, you need a new, uh, a new eye doctor. You need a new dentist. Uh, you need a new financial advisor. And so you, uh, you begin to ask your friends, you know, uh, who do you go to uh, to uh, invest your money, your, your IRA or whatever? Uh, who, who, who takes care of your stuff? Or, or, or who do you go to if, if you need new glasses? Uh, 
is there, do you have a good optometrist in this town? You're, maybe you're new to town or something, or you, you're unhappy with the one you're seeing now. So you ask your friends, and you, you gather some information. And, you know, if you're looking for a doctor, you can go online and, and read reports about them. You can hear, uh, read reviews about them and, and gather some information. But, you know, there comes a point where you're going to have to make a decision. Are you going to trust the guy or not? And if you trust him, you go to him. And you take his prescription, and you take his advice, and you do what he says. You make a commitment. And that's what you need to do with regard to Jesus. It's not just a matter of getting to know him and getting the facts. That Knowledge in itself is not faith. Faith is a commitment. A commitment to that knowledge. Trusting Jesus. Putting your trust in Him means committing your way to Him. You know, He has given you commands as well. And those commands impinge upon every area of your life. You know, the Ten Commandments are from Jesus. Uh, In the Sermon on the Mount, He says, I have not come to abrogate the law, to cancel out the law, but to fulfill the law. And then He gives a sermon on, on some of the Ten Commandments. Not because he wasn't concerned with all of them. He is concerned with all of them. But there were special ones that needed special emphasis at that time and that place. But those commandments are are God's will for our life. And they, they cover every area of our lives, every area of your life. Jesus told his disciples, go make disciples and teach them to obey all the things that I have commanded you. And there comes a point where you're going to have to say, okay, either I'm going to continue to live for myself and do my own thing, or I'm going to have to commit my way to the Lord Jesus Christ and let him be the Lord of my life and and govern my life and and do things his way. That's, That's how faith grows when you make that commitment. But then there's a third lesson here, and and that is that that this all of this often happens and continues to happen and grow in our lives in time of crisis. You know, uh, this man came to Jesus because he was desperate. He loved his son. His son was at the point of death. And he was helpless. He recognized his own Helplessness. He, he recognized that he couldn't do anything for his son. And in his helplessness, he reached out to Jesus. And although he reached out with very weak faith, very faith that, that brought the rebuke of Jesus to him and all around him, nevertheless, Jesus had compassion on him and brought him to greater faith. You may wonder why God brings crisis moments into your life. He brings crises into your life to show you your helplessness, your weakness, your need to him, need for Him. And even if your only prayer is the prayer, Oh God, help me. It's not a very good prayer, but it's a prayer. And Jesus wants you to pray that prayer and come to Him. And if you come humbly to Him, seeking His help, 
He will help you in your need. Commit your way to Him in your time of need. Trust Him. And offer your heart to Him. Offer your life to Him. In view of His mercies, offer your body as a living sacrifice of gratitude unto Him. No longer living for self, but living for Him. You know, faith is not something that only some people are prone to. Some people in their arrogance and in their pride say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person of faith. I, I don't need faith. It's, it's those weak people who can't make it on their own. They, they need faith. Uh, uh, now, we're all people of faith. But most of us begin by putting faith in ourselves, trusting in ourselves and to, to take care of ourselves. Everyone who has such faith, faith in themselves, is made a fool by death. Death shows us that we can't take care of ourselves. We can't stop our loved ones from dying. We can't stop ourselves from dying. We are all powerless in the face of death. And hopefully, before you reach that point of recognizing your own helplessness by the fact that you're dead, before you reach that point, God will send a crisis into your life that will show you your helplessness and your need for Him. John writes, in, uh, or Peter writes in his epistle, In this you rejoice now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, now you have to suffer grief, grief through all kinds of trials, but that your faith so that you may come to faith, and so that that faith may grow, and so that that may faith may redound to the praise and honor of glory at the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, says the Apostle James in his epistle, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's what happened to this man. His faith was put to the test, and it it grew. It became strong. It became mature. So that instead of just seeing Jesus as a wonder worker, he saw that Jesus performed wonders so that people would see his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, grace for sinners, full of truth, truth for your life, truth to live by. Truth to submit to, no longer leaning unto your own understanding, but committing your way to Him. May God indeed give us faith, faith built upon a foundation of knowledge, faith that shows itself to be real by our committed obedience to Him, and faith that matures in times of trial and stress. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You that Though these people did not honor you as you should have been honored, but only wanted you greedily for their own selfish uh, benefit, nevertheless you had compassion on them. So have compassion on us and bring us to greater faith. Bring us to mature faith. Help us to see your glory, glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace, 
grace for sinners, grace for those who have fallen flat on their faces. Lift us up, O Father, wash us clean by the blood of Christ, and set us upon that rock, the rock Jesus Christ, so that we might walk by faith in him, living no longer for self, but obeying his commandments. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.